Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with two-time World Series champ Pat Burrell. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a two-time World Series champion. He was honored by the Phillies and was added to their Wall of Fame in 2015. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Burrell. Pat, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, it's so good to hear from you, man. It's been a long time. Happy to be here. It's been a long time. Usually our interactions are on the golf course. We got shut out haven't been to pebble in a couple years but yeah i I appreciate you coming on the show right out of the shoot uh high school football burl the quarterback position what's your record against brady wow i wasn't ready for that one buddy uh i don't i don't know um (laughs) we did did square off a couple times and uh You know, the thing about it, Tom was a phenomenal uh, baseball player. He was a catcher, uh, left-handed hitter, huge power, um, and got drafted out of high school. I think by Montreal, Montreal or maybe Milwaukee, but uh, he got drafted ahead of me out of high school and and decided to go on to to Michigan, you know, and so uh, then he just kind of rewrote history. But, um, yeah, definitely in high school. You know, it's funny, we were um, roommates at – Bill Walsh's uh, Stanford quarterback camp one year, and they put the two of us in the same room together. So, uh, yeah, we go back a long time. That's fun. So you were like a serious quarterback in in uh, in high school. You went to Bellarmine Prep. You went to I think yeah. he went to Sarah. And uh, oh, this is going to be interesting. All right, childhood. Pat Burrell sure. as a little kid. Uh, tell me about a, a little Pat Burrell. Tell me about growing up. Football, baseball, give it, give it all to me. Yeah, so I think like a lot of kids of our generation played everything. Um, I think the goal was to be outside as much as possible. Um, and so, yeah, played uh, basketball, football, baseball. Baseball was always, um, you know, my true love, really. I grew up, uh, I was born in the Midwest, and so all my family on both sides, it's from uh, Kansas City, so... Uh, George Brett was like, you know, my hero as a kid and, and, uh, why I ended up wearing number five, uh, uh, in the big leagues. And so, uh, we moved out to California when I was a young kid and, uh, I always had, you know, always wore number five and always paid close attention to the Kansas city Royals and what they were doing. So it, it was, uh, it was a fun childhood. And then, uh, as time went on, um, high school that kind of it was at that time where they were kind of guiding people into one direction. And uh, so by the time I was a senior, I was just playing baseball only. Okay. So football up until your senior year. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of, I, I mean, I'm a little before your time. So I was, you know, late eighties in high school, but it, even I did, I, I was playing hoops. I wasn't playing football, but I, I did after my junior year, I just said baseball only and, you know, ended up, Ended up working out all right. You go out, you, you get drafted in uh, 1995, 43rd round pick. Like you said, you said there's a lot of people in front of you. Same for me. You know, I was a 29th pick coming out. Um, 
You're the 43rd pick of the Red Sox. You don't sign. You end up going to the University of Miami. But uh, what what were your other opportunities and was always Miami? So, yeah, I didn't have much, Booney. I was, uh, you know, like the 43rd round, you know, today you wouldn't even get drafted, right, because there's only 40 rounds. So I was down there deep and uh, really didn't even know I got drafted for about three weeks, you know, so no one even called. I think I don't know what the hell was going on, but they – they didn't anticipate uh, signing me. I thought. I think maybe they thought I'd go to junior college and uh, maybe drop some follow type situation. But you know, needless to say, I went to Miami. I I didn't have a whole lot of opportunities. I'd gone on a couple other recruiting trips. Um, Arizona State. I went to Cal, and uh, neither of those schools were willing to give me any type of scholarship. And I was in a situation where I needed some help and. Uh, Cal State Fullerton was one who I think was going to be able to offer me, you know, uh, some money and uh, with Augie down there and Hookie and those guys. And uh, and then Miami came along. And uh, it's un- it's an unbelievable story, Billy, if you actually want to hear it. I want to hear it. But they mixed me up. There was <laughs> – I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but <laughs> there was two guys uh, at my high school at Bellarmine and uh, the other guy was – uh, a guy named Brent Horde. Now he was a left-handed pitcher. He was six four, two twenty-five. He threw ninety-five miles an hour. And this guy was, you know, uh, getting full rides everywhere. I mean, obviously he had a ton of potential. And so when Miami came, they asked both of us to go on the recruiting trip. And what happened was the head coach pulled me out on this boat the first night and offered me 95%. And I took it on spot because I had already gotten shut out by a couple of schools. So I figured, Hey, you know, I don't want him to change his mind. So I accepted on spot and we get back to the hotel and I ask Brent Horde, who, you know, this guy's, like I said, I mean, uh, just anywhere he wanted to go type thing, left-handed uh, pitcher, big and tall through hard and, he was like, you know, they didn't offer me anything but a, a small financial aid package. And he goes, I'm going to it. So I go, all right, man. And he said something like, I'll see you in Omaha or whatever, right? So uh, years go by, you know, 10, 15 years go by. And I'm, I, I go through Miami, get drafted, everything else. And I'm at Arizona State one winter and I'm, I'm working out in the cages and the recruiter from Miami was now working at Arizona state. And he comes up to me and says, you won't believe this. I've been dying to tell you the head coach, he mixed it up. He thought you were the other guy, but you accepted the offer on spot. So he couldn't pull it back. (laughs) Can you imagine? That is, that is the greatest recruiting story I've ever heard. And he does well, that. You know, he thinks dude, he thinks he's getting the lefty throwing a hundred, but you're uh-huh. six four two. You get the offer. You take it. He offers the the lefty what they were going to offer you. I was supposed to get the shitty little financial aid package deal. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Mean. That's unbelievable. And, and oh, you only okay. turn out to be the the number one overall in the draft. That that coach is just thinking, wow. That was a that was a that was a god shot. How do I get well, the number so one pick? And I didn't even mean to. I didn't even mean to offer it to him. Yeah, he he offers me ninety five percent. I go, I'll take it right now. He goes, hey, you know, most of the kids uh, 
you know, they call their parents. I go, I'm not calling mine. I don't want you to change your mind. I'm coming. I mean, I'm out here on this boat. The weather's perfect. I'm, I'm here. This is it. So, um, you know, oh I haven't gosh. even had a chance to run into Brent Horde since then. I mean, I've told the story, but, uh, you know, the pitching coach that was at Miami, I ran into him too, and he said the same thing. And so it's just, you know, it's crazy how things work out. I got out there and uh, got a chance to play <laughs> my first year and, you know, hell, made the most of it. That is awesome. <laughs> Brent, Brent Horde's probably sitting there going, wait a minute, everywhere I go, they offer me a full ride. It's really weird that Miami offered me, like, like uh, maybe board and books. You, so you had no idea you know, when you I left mean, there. It's like, wow, no, Miami really likes me. They don't like this Brent Horde guy. There's a chance that they brought me along to entice him. Who knows? I mean... It didn't work out the way they thought it was going to, that's for sure. But uh, And, you know, he ended up going to Stanford and getting drafted in the second round by the Twins and, uh, you know, didn't had some injuries and didn't end up making it. But, uh, I mean, he was, a, he was a much safer choice, I can promise you that. Well, that's pretty cool. So you go on, you're an All-American, uh, and, and you go down the road, and, and I'll let you tell the story a little bit later with, you know, close buddy of both of ours now, but – at my high school is Phil Nevin. He was that, you know, I was doing my research and I said, well, that was the MVP of the college world series and their team didn't win one of a, only a couple people ever right there. Phil Nevin He's a golden spikes winner right there. Phil Nevin, he goes one, one Phil Nevin. And uh, so you have a lot of, a lot of uh, similarities. I want to talk to you a little bit about because uh, back in our time, you know, I was in college. I, I signed in 90 out of college. You were going to college in 95. But still, I think at that time, it was basically college baseball was broken up into two leagues. Two, you had two choices when I was playing. It was Alaska and it was Cape Cod. And the best yep. players in the nation. Nowadays, you know, the, the kids have so many opportunities. It's actually really cool. But back when we played, if you weren't, you know, kind of a blue chip uh, college baseball player, you really didn't have anywhere to go in the summer if you if you didn't get invited to Cape Cod or Alaska. I went to Alaska. I had a great time there. It was completely different than any place I've ever been. The sun never went down, but uh, you know that that Cape Cod League is is really coveted. And and today's college players, that is still the premier place to go. Give me a little bit about that '96 season summer going off to Cape Cod. Yeah. So we. Uh... We um, we lost on a walk-off home run in the College World Series, and the next day I flew out to the Cape Cod League. So it was a it was a, a total change in scenery. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, what an opportunity! I mean, you mentioned it, Boney. Things are so different now. That was the first time I ever swung a wooden bat, and I don't know about you, but. Uh, I didn't have a, I didn't have a chance. I mean, I, I was overmatched right from the beginning. I didn't, I didn't do much in that league at all. And, uh, you know, I think it's great that these players now they start hitting with wood bats, you know, a lot earlier, but, um, you know, I remember going out there, I played in Hyannis. Uh, I was actually roommates with a guy that I went to high school with. So I got lucky there. Uh, we had jobs in the morning. I don't know if you guys did that. We had hosts. Yeah, we did. I stayed with the, Stayed with a couple, uh, the daughter, she threw BP to our team. I mean, it was a, you know, small community and, uh, you know, gosh, looking back, it was such a great opportunity. I wish I would have played better. Um, but you know, during back, looking back, 
at those times, things went so fast. I mean, you know, the next year I was back in college and then I ended up playing on the USA team the year, the year after, and then bam, drafted and gone. I mean, those years flew by for me. I'm sure they did for you. Yeah. And you mentioned the wood bat. It's funny you say that because now it's, it's commonplace. I mean, these kids, you know, especially the organizations for the prospects, they like to watch these kids swing the wood bat. It it makes it a little easier for them to, uh, to kind of, you know, analyze and, and find out what they, Hey, what's he like with a wood bat? When you mentioned when, when we were coming up, we never swung a wood bat. I never did. And I remember my dad, when I was in college, my dad was still playing. And he sure. said to me, Brett, Brett, if a scout comes up to you and wants you to hit with a wood bat, you say no. And I said, what does it matter, dad? He goes, why are you going to give him any reason to doubt you? He said, rake with the aluminum. Make him pay it and then guess if you can hit with a wood bat. He goes, but we don't give them any information uh, that they don't need to have. Do what you're successful doing wow. using an aluminum right now. And that was the advice I got from from Big Bob. And and uh, actually, I heated it and I thought he's he's actually right. I mean, if you're doing well with aluminum, why should I go swing a wood and have that, you know, have that, you know, how scouts are. You're in that world. Have that have that opportunity for them to say, Oh, we can't hit with a wood, even though this is maybe your first time swinging a wood bat, but, it, but it's interesting. Sure. And the dynamic is so much different now. Yeah. You know, and two, I think that, you know, from an amateur perspective, these scouts are looking for all the things that you can't do, you know, as well. So they, you know, they don't want to just create the perfect player. They got to have something on, you know, in case it doesn't work out. And, uh, yeah, I think that's great advice from your dad. I mean, I you know, after my sophomore year going up there and getting blown up, I, I couldn't believe how I remember the fastballs in. That was the killer. You know, I just couldn't get to it. And, uh, you know, with those aluminum bats at that time, you know, you could, you could inside out that ball into right center for double, maybe even a homer. And uh, they wouldn't pitch in because they couldn't, the bats were, the bats were too live. And so I remember getting blown up a couple of times with that wood bat thinking, I got to make some changes here or maybe, yeah. you know, maybe, you know, somebody start, wrong. So. Start, start looking for an all aluminum league. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. So you get to 1998, you win the Golden Spikes Award, which is the, the most outstanding college player. You go 1-1. Um, that's It's pretty awesome. I mean, there's only one every year that gets to do it. But what was that draft like for you going into it? I usually don't talk much about drafts, but when you're 1-1, that's, that's a different animal. The night before, do you know you're going to be the first pick or is it is it still up in the air? You know, again, Booney, we're talking about pre-cell phone, like, you know, no MLB channel, no draft tracker, none of that stuff. And uh, we were in Omaha uh, during the World Series. Unfortunately, as years went by, they they changed that because there was a lot of pressure on guys to play um, in the World Series during the draft, you know, because you're always kind of looking over your shoulder to see if you went. And so... I was actually playing third base in an elimination game, and a, a scout uh, that I don't think I'd ever talked to uh, was in Omaha and was yelling at me. I was playing third base. He was yelling at me from the stands that um, he had take that his club had taken me, and I and I said, uh, "What team is it?" And he said, "The Phillies." And I said, "Well, how many rounds have there been?" And he said, "There's only been three. 
And he goes, we got your right fielder too. And I said, we, do you know which one went where? And he said, no. And I said, so, so anyways, that's how it went down. I went in the dugout. I talked to my buddy who was my roommate, a guy named Jason Michaels. And I said, shit, man, they, the Phillies drafted both of us. He didn't believe me. He was a senior and he had been drafted three other times all late. And uh, he didn't believe me that he went that high. And of course we didn't know who was, who was where I knew the Phillies had the first pick. There was, you know, some pre-draft buzz about, uh, you know, who was going to be the top pick to the year. And I was in the mix, but there was also like Mark Mulder, you know, and, and he was a stud. And, you know, there was a guy named Jeff Austin that was at Stanford and he ended up pitching for the Royals. I'm sure you faced him. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you didn't have a whole lot. You knew you were kind of in the mix, but I had also, Missed a couple months of that year uh, with some back stuff, uh, L5. And so, I, you know, it was, a, it was a coin flip for me. I didn't know, you know, if, if teams were concerned about the back. And, um, you know, we lost the game. We were eliminated from Omaha. And then the, then the GM calls and says, we took you with the first pick. And I'm thinking, holy shit. I didn't think it was going to come down like this. But, you know, that's, that's the way it was. You got on the the beginning of the bonuses when they started to you know starting to escalate, and you signed well, a five year deal. You, the timing was pretty good because the year before, uh, if you remember, the Phillies drafted JD Drew and he didn't sign. And he held, yeah, he and held so out. He was the second pick the year before because back then it flip flopped uh, leagues, and so he didn't sign, and they lost the pick, and so. The next year, they pretty much had to sign me, no matter what it was, right? And so I didn't know any of that stuff at the time. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, two years prior was that, uh, I guess in 96 was when all those guys found that loophole and were getting those huge bonuses, if you remember. Travis Lee was one of them. Right, right. Uh, and a couple other guys. But, uh, yeah, they were uh, – I ended up getting a major league deal out of it and uh, being on the roster. So, you know, I was really uh, fortunate and just in the right place, you know, honestly with the Phillies because, you know, they had to sign the, they had to sign the pick. You head off, you go to the minor leagues. Um, you weren't there long. You know, you make your debut in, in 2000, but you're always a third baseman at the University of Miami. And you had a guy in Philly, Scott Rowland, you know, one of the, one of the best to, to do it over at third. And uh, they moved you to first base. You remember that? Had they talked to you about it before? Is that just something, you know, they're, I mean, I look at it this way. If they're talking to you about moving you to first, because our big league guys at third, that means this guy's going to the big league soon. So you can look at it twofold. How'd you take that uh, when they came down and moved you over? Kind of like you mentioned, you know, not one day did I ever take infield at third base from the time I was drafted forward. So it was pretty clear that I wasn't going to be playing third. Yeah. Uh, and so I went over to first base and I struggled over there. Um, you know, you hear guys talk about it, but my whole life was on the other, you know, the left side of the infield, and, you know, as a kid playing short and, and, and playing third base. And uh, I struggled at first. Um, and just, you know, that throw to the pitcher going to my right, I hated that. Everything was backwards. And um, I, I did make my debut at first, and 
like I said, I never really was comfortable. I, I, I really had to hit, I, in my opinion, if I was going to stay there. And uh, fortunately, that chilling trade happened, and Kurt went out to Arizona, and we got Travis Lee, uh, who we just mentioned, back in the draft. And as you know, he was a pretty much gold glove first baseman. And uh, at that point, they moved me out to left. And that's really, uh, you know, really where I found my home, got real comfortable. And um, I think it was probably the best move that, that helped me out more than anything in my career. Yeah, you talk about being comfortable and, and you know, I was always a, a shortstop and I go through college and I was probably the shortstop because I was the best of the, of the bad lot at short. So I, I kind of played short in college by default. I, I, I always knew in my mind, I said, I'm not a big league shortstop. And like you said, the first I got drafted, I went to that little mini camp they send you to before they send you to mm-hmm. A-ball or wherever. And I remember, you know, they're giving us that talk. All right, all the new draft picks. They say, all right, take your position. And I start running to short. But I'm kind of looking over my shoulder like, is somebody going to rescue me here? I'm not a big league shortstop. They said, Boone, you go to second. And that is kind of like you said when you got to the outfield. I was kind of like, all right, I can handle second base. And and it's not a big deal. It's not going to affect my psyche. But a year later, when I got to big league camp, we had Omar Vizquel. And they were always complaining that Omar couldn't hit. Now, this is the early 90s before Omar became Omar. They said he's a real slick fielder, but he can't hit. So uh, we're going to give you a shot at short. And at spring training, they put me in at short. You know, I've never been to big league anything before. And I'm going, gosh, you're going to make me play short. I can't really play short. You know, everything at me to my left was easy. But you you put me in the hole. You hit me a grounder in the hole, and you'll realize why I'm a second baseman. And uh, I I got by with it a little bit, but man, it's this game's so hard. It, it's hard enough with that with without being out of position. And thank goodness that was short term. And Omar became Omar, and next year I took over at second base. But but I know what you're talking about, and and the comfort the comfortability, and and the. There's guys I see on certain teams and it's like, wow, that's a little above his pay grade to be playing short. He needs to be over at second base so he can relax and and hit. You know, it's it's nice when you're not hitting to say, well, at least I have some solace when I go on defense. I'm comfortable. But if you're not hitting and you're over your head at your position, it's a double whammy anyway. uh, I think too, as we're sitting here watching this game, I mean, with the shifts now, I mean, I don't know how anybody's comfortable on the infield with as much movement as they're doing. Well, I think what they're doing now is uh, basically, you know, usually in the, in the infield, as you know, the shortstops are always at a premium, but I think what they're doing is they're just drafting shortstops in second base and they're just moving them all over the, all over the map. You know, I don't like some of the things that have gone on. I don't like just, from a personal standpoint, I felt like being a second baseman, the routine play, that, that was never any big deal. But where you made your money was around the bag and turning that tough double play. Now, nobody can mm-hmm. take you out. Everybody has to slide right into the bag. So you got anybody can turn a double play in the big leagues. Now, you got third baseman turning it. And uh, so so personally, uh, selfishly, I don't like the new rules in, in doing that. But I you know, I don't know. I think it starts early in the minor leagues and and you're with the San Francisco Giants. So, you, you know, you got a pulse on it. It seems like they just draft real athletic middle infielders and just move them all around. So when they get to the big leagues, they're comfortable, whatever spot they look on their index card to go play. 
Yeah, I think that's the plan. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but on this same topic, it's like I look back at, you know, knowing I was going to be in the lineup every day and knowing where I was going to play, and that was a huge amount of comfort for me. Um, and the way that they're constructing the rosters today and all the moving parts, I, I just wonder, you know, I think half the battle in the big leagues is knowing that you belong. And uh, it's, it, it would just, it seems to me it would be tough with, uh, with, with, with a lot of these teams and how they're, they're just, you know, moving guys around constantly. I, I always wonder, I, I actually was wondering what you thought about all that. Well, I, I just think, you know, I think what you said without a doubt, you know, when we played and we're everyday players, we're used to being in, in the lineup, seven days a week. Now, once in a while, the skipper is going to get us a day off. But once once you prove yourself at the big league level, you do have a, a little bit of, you know, you get some respect. And and if you're going to get a day off, your skipper will usually come to you the night before and say, Pat or Brett, hey, we're going to give you a day off tomorrow. You might not like it, but it's a consideration. And you go home and and you wake up the next day, you're you're already mentally prepared for that day off. And I thought the great managers gave a heads up to you when you were going to get a day off. Um, you know, if you're a utility player, if you're a veteran utility player, I think the great managers would go to them, give them a day before, go, hey, you're going to be in there tomorrow, be ready. Uh, I, I just think that's common courtesy. I think it's what you do. I, I don't necessarily know if that's the way the communication is nowadays. So, you know, I couldn't imagine other than if you're, you know, Tatis, you know you're going to be in there every day, but if you're just a really good everyday player, are, are these guys checking the lineup? I mean, do they get there? Is there communication? You know, I, I know that the skippers that have been around a while uh, probably do that, but but yeah, I, I, I don't like it. I like to know where I'm playing. I'm an everyday guy. I'm, I'm usually going to hit in this spot in the order. And the way they move around in the order, uh, to me, is... I don't know about you, but, you know, if I was hitting fifth or I was hitting third and I go to check the lineup and I'm hitting six, I'm kind of, well, what's going on here? What did I do? You know, what did I do wrong? What did I, yeah. what did I do tough. wrong? No kidding. I must be, right. must be struggling. Right. As tough as we, we, we give that exterior, sometimes we're a little bit fragile, especially, you know, in the yeah. middle of a season when, when that grind is so hard and, and sometimes we're just in a rough spot to go in there and go, wait a minute, I'm hitting seventh. I usually hit third skip. Skip didn't say anything to me. Just put me there. Um, so yeah, definitely a different game, but I don't know. Maybe they, maybe the kids today are used to that. The young players coming up, it starts in the minor leagues. Maybe if they, they don't know any different then it doesn't affect them the way it affected us. So I don't know. It's twofold. I like our way a little bit better knowing who's playing, knowing who the guys are kind of having your spot in the lineup. And, and that might shift throughout the course of a season. I remember my time in Seattle, uh, you know, I was either hitting third, fourth or fifth, and I didn't really care because it was lefty or righty. And I had John Olerud and Edgar around me and we we're just going to have the three of us were going to be in those positions. So you kind of know uh, where you're going to be in the lineup. But I, I kind of like having some some when I get to the ballpark, I don't like surprises, especially as a veteran player. Um, but I don't know how these how these guys do it today. Uh, Two thousand to get your call up in May. And um, you hit 260, 18 jacks, 79 ribbons, pretty good 
kind of freshman voyage. Uh, you're playing for Tito. I want to talk about the guys you played for because you played for Tito. You played for Larry Boa and then uh, <laughs> Jerry Manuel. But uh, how was that first call up for you? 2000, uh, getting to the big leagues. How was it? Something you've always been planning on doing? It was your dream, just like the rest of us. How was it for you? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, it's funny when you think about the minor leagues, because I'm working now in the minor leagues, and uh, you see the different levels. And, you know, the lower levels, you don't see the major league club on the TV in the clubhouse. But once you start getting double-A and triple-A, you see that major league game on, and guys are watching. Because, you know, they know they're an injury away. And I can I can remember being – uh, and triple a and uh the guys in the team coming up to me and saying hey rico Bronia just broke his wrist you're gone and just that thought i just remember that very clearly going this might be it and uh of course it wasn't it it, it, it took a little bit while longer but yeah he did end up getting hurt and uh, he was out for a considerable period, and uh, they brought me back to first base. I'd already been in left field, and uh, they gave me a couple of days to get reacclimated to the position. And I was, I was up there, and uh, you know, you talk about Terry Francona. I mean, he was the best. Uh, you know, what a what a great guy, fun manager, uh, players manager, uh, let guys do what they wanted, trusted that they had. Uh, that they were going to be professionals and, um, you know, pulled me in from time to time, talked to me and, and, and let me know that he was behind me. And, uh, you know, he was going to let me struggle and, uh, and I was going to be their guy for down the road. And, uh, you know, looking back, he didn't have to do any of those things. Uh, but his, I think his message was to, to, to have me feel comfortable and, uh, you know, I couldn't be more appreciative for that. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. Like you said, you know, we, we, we didn't have a very good club. Uh, I think we lost, you know, 95 games or so that first year and um, they, they fired everybody, you know, and that was an experience uh, I won't forget either because it was just, you know, the somehow the, the, the word leaked out the last day of the season. And so they actually had been let go before the last day of the season and, um, uh, some of them stayed around to coach the game and some guys took off. And so it was, it was a real eye opening experience of how much of a business this was. And, uh, you know, Tito was, uh, a great, you know, uh, a great example of, you know, he stood in there and managed the game like to win the game. And, uh, you know, obviously knowing that uh, he wasn't going to be back. So, um, a lot of respect for Terry and then, uh, you know, you mentioned Larry came in, and that was the complete opposite uh, from an energy standpoint. I mean, Larry was – well, you know Larry. He was your third base he's coach. A, I'm he's, a, he's, he's a psycho. <laughs> what do you he's think? A psycho. He's I a psycho him. is what he is. I, I got the – I got the funniest thing for, for Boa. So I grow up around Boa, right? So him and dad play together in Philly for 10 years. So I know Larry just as a little kid, but that kind of spills over to the field. And we'd come play you guys. And, uh, you know, I I'd, I'd, oh, I'd played against Larry a lot as a third base coach, but all of a sudden he's managing. And I remember that 2003 season. You remember when we came in to play you? Yeah. Yeah, when we'll tell that story in a minute. But I remember coming to the yard. Bo was there. Now, that's, you know, last time I've seen Larry and had a 
adult conversation. Well, for I've never had an adult conversation with him because I was always a kid around him. But I see Larry and he, I wave him out to the batting cage. And, and that's that, you know, we're rolling. We got that that really good Mariner team. And I think we had a four game series against you guys. And I said to Larry, I said, Larry, now you're getting a little hot under the collar because at veteran stadium, when you get in that batter's box, you look right into that dugout. It's like Bo is right there staring at me. And I said, it seems like things have been bothering you lately. I said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to play four games against you. We're going to beat you all four because we're hot right now. And then we're going to leave. And and then I'm going to start pulling for you again. I said, but really, you're going to have a heart attack if you continue to behave like this. And he looks at me. Who the hell are you, you little snot nosed kid? He really got mad at me for real. And, And you know me, I was kidding, but I had to give it to Larry. But that's the type of guy he was. I mean, everywhere I look, Larry Boa is uh is, is throwing a fit somewhere. And I would tease him when I was playing. I'd, I'd make fun of his stance and his swing. And he'd yell at me from third base when he was coaching third base. Yeah, Booney, that stupid swing you're imitating got 2,000 hits. And, and I would kind of give him, you know, I'd tip my cap to him. I said, you know, touche. It did get you 2,000 hits. But I don't know. It had to be an interesting time for you with, with Boa at the helm. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, I'm telling you, you know, you got to love him because you know how much he cares. And uh, uh, I'm sure you would agree. I mean, one of the best teachers about the game of baseball you're ever going to find. And uh, by all accounts, I've heard that there's nobody better coaching third base than than, than he than he is. And so, um, but yeah, as a manager, I mean, I think playing in Philadelphia for all those years, I think there was a lot of pressure. Uh, we had a young team. We had some good players. Uh, we weren't ready yet. And uh, that's funny. That series, I remember going, you know, we had been playing some teams. You know, Atlanta was always good. But when you guys came in, it was like, this is a different league. I remember thinking these guys, you know, we're looking at the numbers. And I'm thinking, man, man, this is interleague play. These guys have numbers like the season's already over. And so uh, I remember that series. And I, I can only imagine when – when your plane landed, what Boa must have been thinking, because he was probably thinking the same thing you said. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just really was nice thinking. about it. I said, Larry, we're just going to, we're going to beat the crap out of here real quick. Just going to be four straight. And then we're going to get out of here. We're going to leave you alone because right now you don't want to deal with us. Cause we were coming off a, like a eight game, uh, we were on the road for, that was like an 11 game road trip. And we were like eight, no coming in. And I knew how everybody was playing. <laughs> I just wanted to tell them. And I did. And I think oh, we yeah. did end up sweeping you. I think we did. Oh, sure. Yeah. The, uh, I remember Piazza saying to me one day in, at the veteran stadium, cause you're right that he, there wasn't any fence or anything in front of the dugout. He was just him right in front of there. And you know, you couldn't help but hear him. And Piazza says something to me one day, he goes, is he ever going to stop? I said, I don't think so. I don't think he's ever going to stop. As long as he's standing there in that uniform, I don't think he's ever going to stop. I said, the good news is he's, he's giving it to me and I'm on his team. He's not giving it to you. <laughs> it, it's amazing. Cause I would sit there. I mean, it's almost like you can't keep your concentration. I think during that series too, I'd be in the box. I'd step out and I'd see him yelling at somebody else. And, and I'd kind of give him a motion with my hand, like, Hey, calm down <laughs> during the game. During the game. And, and the only reason I felt like I could do it is because, hey, I'm that little kid that was hanging around when you were playing with my dad. It, it was bizarre, but uh, it's funny. It is funny. 
Um, when you first came up, okay, because when I came up, I had a couple guys took me under their wing and kind of they were tough on me and it was tough love. Uh, but they really kind of showed me the ropes. And that was a Jay Buner and a Chris Bozzio. I don't know if you remember Chris Bozzio, right handed mm-hmm. start pitcher. Uh, but they really kind of helped me when I got. Do you have anybody that took you under their, uh, took you under their wing when you got to Philly? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's such an important part of the game, in my opinion, and I hope it still is. Uh, Dave Hollins had been with the Phillies, and actually had been out with you, I think, in Seattle, um, or maybe you weren't there yet, but uh, he had been in the early '90s out with the Phillies. Uh, on that 93 team and then they brought him back in uh, to be that kind of veteran leader with all the young guys that we had and we instantly hit it off and uh, you know now we're doing dinners and uh, extended dinners I might add and uh, uh, but just to sit around talking about the game and situations and at bats uh, and the way he played um you know, it rubbed off on all of us. And, you know, it's, it, I remember thinking that the organization uh, really was trying to do something by bringing back some of the older veteran guys, Mickey Moore and Danny came back. And, uh, but Dave Hollins for me was certainly that guy. And, you know, uh, Darren Dalton was always around and, you know, big clubhouse leadership guys. And uh, I was lucky. I was lucky. I got to learn from some good ones. Oh, one, uh, you hit 27 homers, 89 ribbies. Oh, two is kind of that kind of become a star. You're you, you hit 282, you hit 37 and 116. Um, yeah, it's about the time you were who gave you Pat the bat? Who named you or did you name yourself? So, <laughs> no, no, shit. so, um, that's another really good one, actually. He's about to come on TV. Alex Cora was uh, the shortstop at Miami when I was there. And you talk about a guy that knew what he was doing. You know, his brother was up there with you. And uh, so we had a guy playing short and his brother was in the big leagues. I mean, it was the coolest thing. So um, Alex was the, the no doubt leader of that club down at University of Miami. And <clears throat> Obviously, you know, there's a lot of Spanish being spoken down in University of Miami, and I, I was catching on pretty slow, but they kept calling me something, and I, and I, couldn't, I couldn't understand what the hell they were saying. And uh, finally, he said, they're calling, you, they're calling you the bat. And I said, what the, fuck is, what the fuck are they talking about? And they said, well, man, you don't sleep at night. <laughs> that's, that's where it came from. And it's the best. I mean, that's the second yeah. best. No, the college recruiting trip is better. Pat the bat, yeah. you know, the the average everyday uh, fan would just think, oh, because he hits homers, big strapping guy. He's Pat the bat. And, and it has nothing to do with an actual wood bat. No, it was about that candle being burned to both ends. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, three. All right. I'm going to let you tell the story where it's that same. It's the same uh, trip. We're in when, when I was getting into it with Boa a little bit. Uh, Edgar Martinez and myself, we were kind of buddies. And, and uh, I remember after one of the games, we go out, have a beer, and we show up. And there's, uh, I think it's Pat Burrell sitting in the corner. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at him. I'm like, Edgar, yeah, I think that's that Burrell kid. 
because <laughs> we were, you know, we were, Edgar's probably 10, 12 years older than you. I was seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Pick it up from there. Do you remember it? It was the most bizarre night because you were just stone, stone facing me with, with your answers. And I'd never met it. And I know you were, you know, I, we got to know each other a little bit uh, later sure. off the field. And, and I realized then your humor, because I remember talking to somebody after that. I'm like, who is this Burl guy? And they're like, Booney, you'd really like him. He's a lot like you. He just got that that real dry sense of humor. All right. So tell me what you remember about that so, night. You know, 2003, we Philadelphia. Texting. Yeah, we were texting back and forth. And, I, and you mentioned that night. And I remember feeling guilty about it. But I don't really remember what it was about. <laughs> I remember, I remember, um, I remember that there was a seat, and somebody had said, "This is the Boone seat," and I go, "This is the fucking Boone seat." Fuck, he's in Philadelphia. This ain't the fucking Boone seat. And then, other than that, I don't know. But I remember you and I talking and bullshitting, but. Um, that, I mean, I know it's all funny cause it's in the past, but I, I think we, I don't know if I was pissed. I can't, there was something to it. I just don't remember what it was. And you kept staring at me and I'm going, who is there? I, uh, yeah, I'm going, who is this young buck talking to us like this? You know, you guys are getting your now, butt David kicked Bell right there? now. Huh? Was David Bell there with you guys? No, Bell, huh? Bell might've been. Bell might have been with us. You're right. You're right. And yeah, David. Or, or no, with us. no, 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 no. It wasn't David Bell because that was 2003. Bell was there in the uh, 01, maybe 02, but he was gone by 03. But I, I remember. So he was on the Phillies. Yeah, he was on the Phillies. He might have been there with you guys. And and Bell might have been the one. He's like, Booney, you would love Pat. Trust me. And I'm like, well, I'm not loving him right now. I don't like how he's behaving. <laughs> and, you know, me, I'm high on my horse at that time. And you're looking at me going, oh, shit. We yeah. Both and I remember telling you, I remember telling you, who are you, Schmitty? And you're looking at me, no, yeah. I'm Pat Burrell. I'm the number one pick in the draft. And I said, well, I, a good buddy of mine's Phil Nevin. He was the number one pick. I'll give you his number, and you guys can chat about it. And I remember well, the I back remember. and forth, and I left that. I left that. I, I forget where we were. I left there, and Edgar and me are looking at each other like, what just happened? <laughs> it was one of the most bizarre nights. But like I said, getting to know you over the years, it's, it's, a lot, it's really funny now that I think back on it. You know, the truth is, but I look back at some of those years and, uh, you know, Oh two, I had a big year. Oh three. I just couldn't find it. I knew it in spring training, uh, playing in that town was tough. And, uh, I look back and some of the things and I did and, and reacted and, uh, you know, don't feel too great about them. I'm sure that night was one of them, but, uh, like you said, over the course of the next 20 years, gotten to know each other and uh it's been a pleasure man you know who else was, it was there nick punto that's what i remember nick punto uh nick and punto he was and maybe jason michaels maybe yeah it could have been could have been God. so what we get to uh 20 2000 ago. that was a long time ago 2000 uh 2005 you have another huge year 281 32 and 17 um but I want to get to 
some of the players you played with, you know, and, and we'll get into Charlie Manuel. Uh, I've never heard a negative word about Charlie. Um, you know, early on in your, when you first got to the big news, it was Lieberthal and Abreu and shoot, you played with Ronnie Gant. I played with Ronnie Gant, but then you're getting into the years of the Ryan Howards and the, and the Utleys and the Rollins. You got to play with Jimmy, Jim Tomey, who's, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. He has always, always was, <clears throat> but you get to 2008 and, um, you hit 33 homers that year. You end up – that's the World Series year. It's your first first World Series championship. You, you win the series four to one. Um, just take me through that 2008 season. I'm always interested at guys that, that play in Philadelphia because that's the town I grew up in. And I remember – uh, you guys were the first to win since since dad dad and Boa's '80s team that won, and I just remember as a little kid. I know it's completely different, you know, the player versus the kid, but I remember that city and what an unbelievable buzz there was, not only for the Phillies, but for the Sixers and the Flyers and the Eagles. And right around that time, as a kid, everybody was on fire. Everybody was winning. Such a cool town. Uh, take me, I couldn't imagine being a player in that city, let alone winning the World Series at that time, because I know how that city is. Take me through that 08 season. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, your dad and, 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 and that 80 team, uh, I mean, every year, uh, so I was there from, you know, 2000 to 2008. So every year and during sometime in July, they'd bring back that 80 team. All the videos would come up, Tug making the last pitch and your dad and all that stuff. And we kept saying, man, maybe someday they'll be showing videos of us. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, that year, a lot of things came together. Um, we had, we had, kind of formed this offense that was pretty damn good with Jimmy Rollins and Utley and, and Howard. And I was mixed in there somewhere between the lefties and um, a guy named Jason Worth came onto the scene and he was, we could tell he was going to be fantastic. Uh, but we didn't have the pitching. And then uh, of course, Jamie came over uh, and, and kind of solidified things and gave some better leadership. Cole Hamels emerged as kind of a star and, um, and, and, and we had some other pieces, Brett Myers. and But it was really the pitching that, that took us over the edge. And, um, you know, to watch over the years, you know, like you mentioned Charlie coming in and Boa and Terry at the beginning, to see how it all kind of came to be. And it was pretty rewarding, um, you know, as that 2008 year. had, We got a little taste in 07 getting in the playoffs. We got swept by Colorado in three games. Um, and by 08, you know, I knew my contract was up and, uh, we were, and, and, you know, the future's uncertain as we all know. So it was a big year for me. I wanted to make sure that we got the most out of it. I thought maybe, you know, if we won, they'd bring me back, but, uh, you know, they, they had plans to move on and, uh, you know, it was interesting, you know, Ruben Amaro Jr. was the general manager and called me and said, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, you know, we're not going to bring you back and uh, we need to get uh, a little younger out there and more athletic and, you know, the standard stuff that they say. And, uh, of course, you know, what do you say? You just appreciate the time and and, uh, and the opportunity. And uh, so I moved on and uh, had a difficult time really getting a job in 2009 uh, in the national league, which is where I wanted to stay. And I, I couldn't, um, so I went down to Tampa, but, uh, 
you know, you talk about that city of Philadelphia, Booney. I mean, those guys every year would come back and, and then once we won, you know, I can remember having all those guys around Schmitty and uh, obviously Boa and Lazinski and Carlton. And they all said, you know, winning that, that night's going to be great, but the parade you'll never forget. And I just, for some reason, I didn't, I didn't anticipate the parade being that, that big of a, of a, of a moment or a day. But let me tell you, man, coming down Broad Street, um, I was lucky enough to, they asked me to lead the team out on the Budweiser deal, the wagon with the horses and the whole deal. And I, I, you know, we talk about it, it gives me a little bit of goosebumps even now, but turning on Broad Street and seeing that sea of red and then, you know, that seven mile stretch to the stadium. I mean, I I couldn't believe how many people were out there supporting us, uh, hanging out of windows. Uh, You know, that town, uh, that town came alive. You know, it's a huge city. Um, We're kind of isolated in the downtown area, but the suburbs, I mean, people came from everywhere to support that team. And, uh, you know, the highlight of the day was, I think, Utley, at the uh on the podium there i don't know if you remember that but he he uh he they asked him what it meant to be up there and he said he goes world champions and then he says world fucking champions yep and the place was zerk and he had to apologize to all the kids in school (laughs) (laughs) took the day off yeah, but I'll but, tell you, over uh, the years, I mean, when something's that big, you know, you really don't think sometimes. And I'm sure uh, nine out of ten people in that crowd, you know, like you said, you got to be careful with the kids, but they love, they probably love it. It was the greatest thing they ever heard. I, I remember hearing that. I remember hearing it. As a player, I thought it was cool. You know, as a player, and <laughs> because I, I appreciate how hard this game is, and, and I got to play on a lot of great teams, and I got to go to World Series, but I never won one. You know, and I played with some unbelievable players that that never got to win a World Series and, and some not even got to go to one. So I, I appreciate and respect how hard it is. So so once you win that thing and, and you maybe have a slip up at the mic, me, Brett Boone, the player, just says, do whatever you want, man. You just won the World <laughs> Series because I, I know how awesome it must be. It must be. You know, dad rubs it in. I got, he's got a couple rings now. But, uh, no, very cool, very cool. Like you said, you were moving on. You signed a two-year deal with Tampa Bay. And uh, in 10, 2010, you get designated. You know, we all get designated at some point, but uh, you end up signing with the Giants and you end up finishing strong there. You hit 18 homers with the Giants. You only had two for Tampa that year. And before you know it, you're just getting off the parade, uh, getting off the float in 08. It's another world championship ring you're about to get uh, take me through that 10 year and i'm really interested to hear you had some characters on that 2010 remember lynchicum and, and sandoval rowan uh kane was kind of your ace that year but i remember that, fear the beard that was the fear the beard year wasn't it that was it he uh i mean yes yeah, so taking back and i was in tampa and i had struggled i i, I just couldn't seem to get acclimated to that dh role um and you know that you know i mean they 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 signed me to to be the dh and uh you know i just didn't perform booney i mean it's that simple i i I was healthy and uh 
yeah, I just, I just couldn't seem to get comfortable. I mean, and, uh, I remember thinking that the ALE's pitching was a lot better than what I was used to, to be honest. So, uh, but you know, about a month or so into the season in 10 and my second year, they called me in they said, you know, we're going to, we're going to designate you and this and that. And I said, you know, I, I, you, you paid me a lot of money to do my job. I'm not doing it. And, uh, so they released me and, uh, I remember going back to Arizona and, you know, I had my 10 years and, uh, as you know, that's kind of a big mark in, in the, in the, you know, for us players. Um, yeah, it's kind of the benchmark for, you know, not only the pension, but it's just kind of, uh, you're fully vested and it just kind of something you get to. Yeah. I got my 10 years in, you know, it, yeah, I, I go ahead. Yeah, so that was kind of where I was at. I, you know, I said we won one, and uh, I got my ten years. And uh, you know, if this is it, I got to be pretty grateful for all the opportunities. And you know, I thought about that for a while, and I thought, you know, I think I can still, if I could get back in the National League and maybe get a chance to play, maybe, maybe I got something left. And uh, you know, I wasn't moving around very good, um, and the Giants called and. Um, I think we called them a bunch of times and I think that they finally said, you know, was, you know, is Pat willing to go down to AAA and see if he can play the field? And so I said, yes. And, uh, I knew that that team had unbelievable pitching because I had seen Tim and I had seen Kane and Jonathan Sanchez. And so I knew there was something there. Uh, they just couldn't score any runs. And, um, I think they were, uh, I think they were searching so bad just to try to get some some guys in there that could put some runs on the board. They finally, they finally said, "Let's give it a shot." And uh, you know, I got I I went down to AAA, and you know, I I kind of got hot down there, and uh, I was there for you know probably four or five days, and got hot at the right time, and they brought me up, and you know, that's when I met Bochi, and. Uh, you know, there, there's really no doubt in my mind that he was the best I played for. You know, the way he managed the game, the way he handled the bullpen, I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody better. Um, and, you know, at the for, at the beginning there, I wasn't playing a whole lot. You know, I'd pinch it. I'd play some against lefties. And and then I, I kind of worked my way after the All-Star break into the starting lineup and, uh, you know, miraculously really kind of got, got, in, got locked in there and uh, – we still, you know, we still needed some pieces. And then, you know, we picked up Cody Ross at the, on the waiver wire. Um, we got a few, we got Javier Lopez out of Pittsburgh. Uh, and Aubrey Huff had been there and he had caught fire. And, you know, it just kind of took off. Renteria got healthy. Um, and, you know, before you know it, we had something going. And, and you know what it's like, Boney, when you get, you get the right pieces at the right time and you just start rolling. And that's really what happened with that team. I mean, it, in my opinion, it always starts with the pitching. We, we had that. I don't think anybody knew how good it really was uh, until the postseason. but you know, we, we, we had the foundation in my opinion, we had the back end with Brian Wilson who kind of emerged as a, you know, got a, I mean, a rock star really throughout the year. And then, all of a sudden the beard came out and 
and die. And man, before you know it, he was, he couldn't walk around, he couldn't walk around town. Um, But uh, it all came together at the right time and we were moving in the right direction. Um, And you hear it all the time, 25 guys. uh, We just, we, we caught it and, and, and we ran with it and we had enough to carry it through. Awesome. All right. I need, I can't let you out of there. Give me the rally thong. Give me the rally thong story. Who came up with Was it Gomes that came so, up with it? No. Uh, Aubrey, all of a sudden, he was kind of the guy who talked to the press, you know? Right. There's always a couple guys that do that. I was in the back room drinking Bud Lights and smoking heaters, but <laughs> he, he'd, always, he'd always go out and talk to them and and hey, man, he was great. He gave them what they wanted. He gave them, you know, he he told stories. He was great. And then at some point in late August, he had been scuffling and he grabs, he takes his wife, he, he brings in this red thong underwear of his wife's and he said, fuck it, I'm wearing it. And uh, I go, buddy, the, you know, we've all... <laughs> Side of things I, to do, and you know, <laughs> there's, there's also a comfort level. I mean, you got a jock, you know, you're in the infield, you're wearing a cup. I said, There's no way this is going to work out. Plus, there's not enough fabric on this thing to cover what you're trying to cover, in my opinion. I can see so, you stone facing him, too, going, Aubrey, Aubrey, this is this is a funny idea, but come on, let's put it on this. <laughs> I can see the interaction. Oh, yeah. And, you know, him and I, he went to University of Miami, too. So we had kind of reconnected on the Giants as well. And uh, so, I mean, he, you know, of course, he gets hotter than hell, and he's keeping this thing going. And and next thing you know, we're, the parade in San Francisco, when we won, it was um, – they. They assigned a couple players each to a trolley car, and so we didn't know what to expect. They didn't. The communication wasn't that good. We showed up at the ballpark for the parade, you know, thinking we were going to be on flatbeds or something, some kind of deal. And uh, they said, "All right, Huff and Burl, you're you're in uh, trolley car number twelve or whatever." So we're on this trolley car, and uh, it's just the two of us. And so, you know, I said, "Well." this can be a long day. Cause I just went through this with the Phillies. I said, this is a long day. I said, we should probably go to the liquor store and load up. So we get a cooler full of beer. And next thing you know, we're out there and he pulls this rally thong out and the fans are going berserk. And then he takes it on the podium and pulls it out of his pants. And I got a picture I'm looking at right here of him and I hanging out of this trolley car hand in hand. And I got my hand on half of the, half of the song <laughs> again you know some of the things i've you, know, you do you look back and go god why but uh no it was one of those things boonie in the moment um huff liked to you know do stuff like that and you know whether it meant anything who will never know but it was certainly a part of his deal for sure very cool. And you mentioned playing for Boach. Yeah, I, I, I got an opportunity to play for Bruce one year, uh, just 2000 in San Diego. But I think you're right on. It's it's tough to I, – I, I was lucky to play for some really cool managers, and, and Boach was, was definitely the one. He's like a – you know, he's got that, hey, how you doing? And it's, he's just a big teddy bear. 
but but he knows the game and he's just a likable guy. He's got an unbelievable presence about him. Uh, and Boach is one of those guys, as you can probably attest to. It's you ever heard anybody say a negative word about Boach? I mean, he's Boach, no. and and there are not too many guys that that have that that it factor. There's something about him, and and uh, he was the man, and he, he ends up winning three in San Francisco. Unbelievable. Uh, I don't know if he's going to get back in the game. Larusa did it. I had Boach on the podcast, you know, months ago, and he said, "Yeah, I'm, Booney, I might be up for for another run. I'm I'm feeling healthy." And I said, "You know, there'd be nothing yeah. cooler than to to see Boach come back, whether you will or not. Uh, I have no idea." So second round, you get your second ring. Pretty awesome. After the after the eleventh season, you end up retiring, and. Uh, it ended up being a, a good relationship for you going to San Francisco. Not only do you win a world series, but uh, you hook up with Sabian and, and you've been working with the, I think you've been working with the organization ever since. You know, it's pretty much in one way or the other, I stayed on, uh, I wanted to stay in the game and didn't really, really know what, what to do. I think a lot of us get out and not, not really sure how to, what we're going to do, what our interests are. I knew I wanted to stay and I just didn't know to what extent. And, and, uh, you know, Brian had said, you know, why don't we take you out of uniform and put you in the stands? And, uh, and at first I, I, I really didn't know what to expect, but I loved it. You know, I ended up being a major league scout, did a lot of advanced stuff, uh, for us, um, from 12 through 15, um, and of course, you know, the first year I'm scouting that we're on this insane run with the Giants again. And, uh, you know, we're out in Detroit, you know, advancing. And, you know, as you know, Booney, if you, if you get off the field and the next year you're in the stands, you pretty much know everybody on the field. And as a scout, that can only help, right? I mean, you know, tendencies, you, you know how pitchers pitch, you know how hitters, what they look for. So, being on an advanced team, uh, going into the playoffs was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we had a great team and again, they were hot. And so I got lucky really staying on with the giants through 12 and 14, uh, to be a part of those years as well in a totally different capacity. Um, and then of course, you know, 15 at the end of 15, I, uh, reconnected with my, my high school sweetheart and, uh, you know, at that point, I, I kind of needed a break from all the travel and uh, got away from it a little bit. And uh, then, you know, just I've always kind of felt the need to be a part of it and very thankful for the Giants for allowing me uh, to come back. I did some TV pre and post game um, in uh, 18, 19. And then, uh, then in 20, I was, you know, coming back to be the San Jose Giants hitting coach in uh, A-ball. And then obviously the season got canceled. And then this year um, having an opportunity to be a, a roving hitting instructor, which has just been fantastic, you know, uh, uh, staying involved with the whole organization um, and also having time to do some stuff that I want to do at home. So uh, it's been a fun year. It's been a great ride, man. Just really grateful for uh, the opportunity that this game has given all of us. That that is awesome, and it just so ha- you know it just your right place, right time, and and everything's worked out for you with the Giants, and like you said, it, it you do, and and all of us don't have the the 
forward thinking. You know, I know I didn't when I retired is to stay in the game right away. I, I, I wish it, you mentioned looking back and wishing we'd done things different. I for sure am one of those guys, man, I would have done this different and this different, but uh, no, it's awesome. And, and it's great to hear that you're really enjoying your life and, and being a part of these young players lives. And, and there's nothing better. I did it for a couple of years with Oakland. Uh, I think in 15, we worked with the lower, you know, the lower minor leagues mostly. But I, I had that group that had Pinder and, and uh, Olsen and Chapman. It was just cool to see them progress and get better and better. And us as veteran players and ex-players, if we can just give them a little bit of our knowledge from what we learned, you know, not everybody's going to listen, not everybody's going to heed it. But it's really kind of cool as, as a mentor to and you don't need the the accolades. You don't need it to be on the front page. It's just you and that player knowing, hey, yeah, we had a connection. And, hey, listen to me. And it's pretty cool. Makes it a little easier, doesn't it? That, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. And I'm glad uh, you're really enjoying that. I want to ask you about 2015. Uh, get a call from the Phillies. They're going to put you in the Wall of Fame. Uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, thing to be asked to do that. I know the Phillies are great with bringing their alumni back and, and they really like to keep their history at the forefront. I think that's important. I think nothing better than going to the ballpark with grandpa, a dad and a son and the son can really relate to that current player, but, but the dad can look and maybe there's an ex player uh, on the field watching batting practice and go, oh, I remember watching him play. And then grandpa, you know, I think of the Yankees are probably the best at it. Uh, haven't mm-hmm. really representing their alumni, but Phillies do a, do a hell of a job back there. Really, honoring the the guys that came before the current guys. And, and I think it's really cool. Tell me about uh, going on the wall of fame. Well, you know, like you said, uh, what an honor, you know, and I had played there, um, you know, for nine seasons and every, every August there was somebody that came back, you know, whether it was Lazinski or, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, you know, your dad and, uh, uh, so just to get the call, uh, instantly, uh, just ecstatic. And then the panic starts. Cause I know I got to speak in front of all those people for 10 minutes. Um, but, uh, yeah, getting that call, um, knowing that, uh, there were still guys on that team that I had played with and, um, it was a really cool experience. You know, I, I, I've never been real comfortable getting up in front of a big group. And that was probably the biggest stage. Um, but I'll tell you, um, it's interesting about Philadelphia because you, you come back as a visiting player and you're not really sure if you're going to get cheered or booed, you know, that's just the kind of the culture there. And if you do well against them, you're going to get booed for sure. And, uh, you know, my time there, there was certainly ups and downs. And so you're, you're kind of wondering what, uh, what kind of greeting you're going to get when you walk out on the field. And, uh, I was just so taken back and, uh, so happy that, uh, my impression there was good enough to, to warrant a lot of cheers, man. It was a really cool moment. Um, and just, you know, when they, they bring all those guys back and having them stand behind you, I mean, it was a, a big moment for me and something I'll never forget. Very cool. Uh, what advice do you give to a young Pat Burrell coming out of the University of Miami? 
Oh, man, where do we start, Booney? Uh, well, you know, I think we touched on it a little bit. Uh, it's all about expectations for me. You know, we, we talk to players all the time in the minor leagues and, you know, what is it that you want to do? And, um, you know, if, if, if you want to be the best you can be, then this is a full-time thing. And, uh, you know, obviously it's easy for me looking back cause I, I can go, you know, got to take, take, take better care of yourself, you know, uh, <laughs> all of us. And, oh yeah. And it's a different time now. I mean, these guys, these guys, uh, miss out on a lot of that camaraderie that happened after the game. And I, parts of me think that's unfortunate because I think that's where you learn a lot about the game. And, but the other part says, man, these guys are a lot healthier than we were, and they'll probably play a lot longer. Um, but you know what? You, you do what you do. Um, I always – the first thing I say to guys is, you know, you got to stay on the field. You know, you you got to find a way to stay healthy. It's the only way you can learn in this game. And uh, training staffs across the league are different now. Uh, they're very careful about everything, and, and maybe that's a good thing too. Um, but I think at times there's some over caution too with guys, um, you know, because you're not gonna you're not gonna be a hundred percent maybe for a couple of years of your career at most, um, or feel great, I should say. Um, but the biggest thing is take care of yourself. You know, take care of yourself on and off the field because uh, you only get one chance at this thing and uh, your body is the only thing that can get you through it. So take care of it. You know, I wish I would have taken more of that advice myself, but like I said, what are you going to (laughs) do? Worked out pretty good for you. Yeah. The ability to post that should be that when you're, when you're scouting for those of you listening to the Boone podcast, there's, there's uh, scouts go through and they rate, they rate tools one to eight. And uh, I, I think I, I heard it. I, I didn't make this up. I don't want to take full credit, but I heard some some announcer on TV said the ability to post should be in that that scout evaluation. I, and I thought about it. I said it really should because the ability to post really? is a skill to show up and be willing to play. You know, I watch a, I've got a son and, and he's just starting off his career in a ball. And I said, buddy ability to post you got to be ready every day we're not going to feel good every day we don't have to be a hundred percent but we got to know the difference between being hurt and being injured and uh hopefully he heeds that advice pat burrell it's been a pleasure man this has been a lot of fun catching up with you a lot of a lot of cool stories and uh it's been a pleasure uh what we do each and every boone podcast at the end is we bring the voice of the boone podcast dan levy back for a question from the fans dan gentlemen hi pat how are you Hey, Dan, how are you? I do splendid. Thank you very much. This question comes from don't, Joe. What's that? Don't tell me you got Brent Horde on the on the phone. And he's wanting to know about that scholarship offer from Miami. No, I don't. But if I could have found it by now, believe me, he would have <laughs> broken in this podcast. <laughs> believe you me, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. But this question actually comes from Joe in Boca Raton. And he wants to know this. Pat, tell us about the Canes and why that program is so special. You know, it's one of the regrets I have. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not a bigger uh, supporter of that. I, I've gotten away from it a little bit. Um, the culture down there—it's uh, a baseball culture. You know, 
uh, a lot of Latin community, Latin American community down there. Um, I couldn't believe coming from Northern California where baseball is pretty big and, uh, getting down to university of Miami. And it was obviously the football team was a big part of it, but everywhere you went, kids are playing baseball. Um, and that program has, has delivered a lot of players, you know, and, uh, I think the the biggest thing is just the love of the game. I mean, those down there in Miami, um, so many good players even today come out of, uh, of, of South Florida. And, uh, I think that's what makes it so special. Uh, so many people care about the, the game of baseball down there. And as a personal question for me, for somebody who went to high school in Omaha, Nebraska, can you give me a really good story about being in Omaha? Yeah, let's see. Uh, well, I mean, I'll tell you, um, the I played in Rosenblatt Stadium, the 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 old one, and there was a I was walking in with my team, and we had some time, and there was a rain delay in the game before us or something, and my mom and I decided that we were going to walk across the street and get ice cream. Now, for what reason I couldn't tell you, but she tells the story, and a kid came up to me with a baseball in this ice cream parlor and asked me to sign it. He actually recognized that I was on the Miami team and uh, I had had some success out there and asked me for my autograph. And I think that was in my mom's opinion and mine, the first time a kid had ever come up and asked me for my autograph. And so um, it was a really cool experience, you know, just uh, as you know, that there's something magical about Omaha. And uh, for me, certainly that, that old stadium up there on the Hill and, um, man, there was some great baseball that was played there. And uh, it's always going to be a, a special place for me and a special town. And uh, But, God, I can tell you, I wish we could have won one, man. That was that was tough. That walk-off homer in 96 with Warren Morris was tough. It was tough. All right. Well, Pat, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We really appreciate it. All right, Dan. Thank you. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound, right? Uh, I haven't heard it yet, but I probably will. That would be mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Booner Booner. You said in the interview that there could have been some things that you would like a do-over on. And when you look back at your career, what would you like to do-over on? Wow. Uh, I would have slowed down. I would have listened. I would have trained more. I'd have been more disciplined early in my career. Uh, I never was a, a weight room guy, a training guy. I always said, I don't lift weights. I'm a baseball player. And when I got into it, the second half of my career, I really started to see the benefits and not not just the strength benefits, but the, the psychological benefits from really getting on a, on a strict regimen that, that, uh, that you couldn't waver from. You know, and, and it really made you stronger mentally. Like, wow, if I can do this, I can do anything. If I can stick to this diet, I can do anything. If I can train uh, nine hours a week in the gym, I can do anything. And it really is empowering. So I wish I would have got that a little bit earlier in my career. But uh, I, I never like to look back and, and regret. We all have regrets in our lives. We, we'd always done something different. That's why life is life. And, and you learn as you go. But uh, just to slow down a little bit more. And to to look around and, and, you know, not to be corny, but to smell the roses sometimes. 
Uh, I think that the game is such a grind. It's so hard. And all we worry about is every day and who we're facing. And I've got to find a way to get a hit or two. And and we don't take the time at, at Fenway Park or Wrigley Field during a day game to just take a moment and look around and go, wow, look how lucky I am. I get to do this for a living and they pay me a lot of money to do it. Uh, as And it's not a fault against players. It's it's the nature of the game. But if I could do one thing, I, w- I would have stopped and, and, and been a little more still and, and enjoy how awesome uh, what I got to do for a living really was. All right. This one comes from Joe in Philadelphia. <clears throat> Brett, you've been around so many famous people your entire life. When was the last time you were actually starstruck? <laughs> Ah, let's see. Starstruck. <clears throat> I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. You know, I think if I would see some, I was starstruck the other day because there's certain people that are out, out and about, you know, baseball players. know, athletes know that's not going to happen because that's been my whole life. I'm never going to be starstruck by an athlete. I've met all of them. <laughs> it seems like, but, uh, I, I like the rock star thing and the actor, you know, the, the actors that, that you seem like they never show up at sporting events. They're never anywhere. The only time you ever see him is on a red carpet or in the movies, like a Tom Cruise. I saw him the other day and he was at a he was at an L.A. Dodger game. And and those guys think they're not even real. You know, I think of a Mick Jagger. If Mick Jagger were to walk into, you know, Trader Joe's and pick up some <laughs> fish with me, I'd go. I thought you were like a plastic guy, like a Michael Jackson. You, you don't think he really exists until you actually see him. I'd never seen him. But uh, those are the guys that would start uh, that would make me starstruck. But I don't remember the last one. I got a bad answer for you. I'm sorry. Well, for my answer, it's only been one person and you've played golf against him. But Michael Jordan was the only person I've ever been completely speechless around. And that I wasn't even able to utter a word when I saw him. And then he kicked me out of a locker room and I was able to talk to him after that. Oh, OK. Yeah. That's yeah, I've had a few encounters with Jordan. Never starstruck. Never. He's the guy that looks like flat, like he's floating on on in water, man. Yeah, but I don't know. It's the athlete. It's thing. the athlete. We, athletes. We 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 really we respect and and uh, so you're I'm more, in so awe. You're more, of, I'm in awe of other sports, you know. But when they come down to to the ballpark, they they can't believe how hard it is to hit. We go to their arena, man, I couldn't imagine dropping back and throwing a 70 foot, 70 yard pass. Couldn't imagine making a three at the buzzer or, or rejecting someone going in for a dunk. So it's all, it's a healthy respect among, among the sports. You know, I've been out on a, on a minor league hockey rink and man, I couldn't imagine skating full force up against those guys and, and dealing with the puck. It's just it's something that that I don't do for a living. It'd be really hard. I love watching golfers uh, hit the ball. It, they they hit it so pure, and their 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 ball striking ability is so it's so perfect every time. When we're out there hacking it up, and we're <laughs> we hit it pure half the time. So I, I'm always in awe of other sports at the highest level. 
All right. Well, that is going to do it for this here Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer, the voice of the Boone podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content all gets downloaded and uploaded, all thanks to Liz Landry. She's the reason you get to hear this. So please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating, please, and share your feelings about the Boone podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to this show. For all of us here on the Brett Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you soon.